With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Scottish Playoffs Group B. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, where we have reviewed all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. We have 13 Rex Factor winners, and we are now conducting playoffs to decide which of them will be crowned the Scottish Rex Factor champion. So, a reminder of how this is all going to work. 13 was an awkward number to divide by, so we gave our top-scoring monarch, the top seed, Robert the Bruce, a bye straight into the final. Mm-hmm. So we have three groups, each with four monarchs, and in each of those we do a separate podcast episode, go through their life and reign, compare them factor by factor, mm-hmm. and at the end of that we have an electoral college system to pick which one from each group will join Robert the Bruce in the final. Yeah. The electoral colleges being me... Ali. Hello. And the rest of the world. Hello. So at the end of each episode, Ali and I write down our preferences in secret cards from mm-hmm. one to four. And there will be links on all of our various websites on Podbean, on WordPress, on Facebook, on Twitter, where you, the public, can also vote for which monarch in each group you want to go through to the final. So this is Group B. Mm-hmm. We have four new monarchs to consider. Okay. And they are Kenneth II. Yeah. Born in 935, he was 36 when he became king in 971, the son of Malcolm I, and he is our eighth seed. Okay. We then have his son, Malcolm II. I thought he was the son of Malcolm. No, but okay, yeah. Gosh. I know, more than one. (laughs) (laughs) Malcolm II uh, was born in about 954, so he's about 50 when he becomes king in 1005, Mm. son of Kenneth II, and he is our 12th seed. Two Rexes in a row, that's rather good. Mm, well, they weren't consecutive episodes. Oh, which spoiler might be, alert. might be an interesting <laughs> one. Uh, David I, born in 1084, he was about 40 when he became king in 1124, son of Malcolm III. Right. We've got all the Malcolms mentioned in mm. this one. Uh, and he is our seventh seed. Okay. And James IV, mm. born in 1473, 15 when he became king in 1488, and he is the son of James III, and our third seed. James IV was the nice chap. He was the nice chap. Okay, yep. So, those are the four monarchs. Mm -hmm. Um, As we said previously, although we'll be referencing the scores that they got last time and their rankings, uh, the Rex Factor, of course, is not all about the numbers. Yeah, it's just... I mean, one of them might score much, much lower than the others, but has that certain something a little bit more than the others? 
So, speaking of uh, arbitrary uh, ways of judgment, mm. Ali, perhaps you would like to uh, have a reminder mm. of the Heritage Limited playing card depictions oh, of the monarchs and say which one of them has got the best card. Okay. Okay. Um, they're all pretty good. Oh, this is another one with a uh, with a um, bird um, club. <laughs> yeah. Bird king of clubs on his finger. James IV looking good, but dare I say it, a bit dull. David the First looking uh, godlike with his fingers like that. I think <laughs> Jesus you did always described him as God last oh, time. Did I? <laughs> yeah. uh, Malcolm the Second looking competent. Now, do you remember what he's got in his hands? Uh, is that like it was like a treasure map? And but as we discovered, it was more likely a kill list. Ah, oh, he's the serial killer. He doesn't look like a serial killer. No. You can never tell. <laughs> no. Uh, and Kenneth the Second. Jolly Green Giant. Indeed. Which is your pick of those four? Oh, based I see. Purely uh, on the cards. Uh, Kenneth II. Because he's got a nice smile on. But <laughs> uh, if the one I'd like, probably David I. Mm. Yeah. If you've got God on your side, that's yeah. it. <laughs> so, what we're going to do is follow the normal structure of an episode. So, first up Biography! So, for this one, we'll take them in chronological order. So, first up, we've got Kenneth II. Mm context for his reign um it's really the problem of the succession mm. because in scotland at this time they had an alternating system where rather than going from father to son it went from brother to brother it just makes each claim as diluted as possible yeah so as i say initially it was okay when they were all being killed by vikings but at this point the family trees are far too extended and we've yeah. got this split between the descendants of constantine the first and hashtag remember Ieth. oh right does it come from him it does indeed oh, yeah right. So, prior to Kenneth II becoming king, Duff had fought with Cullen, mm. initially victorious, but then he's overthrown. And then Cullen is killed in a hall burning by the Britons in 971. Duff was Billy Groat Gruff under the bridge. Yeah. Duff, Billy Groat Duff, yeah. So, Kenneth II comes to the throne in 971, or does he? Mm. The Irish chroniclers claim that a chap called Olaf, brother of Cullen, was actually king in 971. What? So what we seem to have is either history being rewritten by Kenneth later on, or, perhaps more likely, the country split between these two dynastic factions. Right. Okay. So we had a period of civil war, and um, it's possible that Olaf might have been guarding the kingdom while Cullen was in Strathclyde, having himself burnt in a hall by the Britons. Oh, right. Okay. So, uh, and then once he was killed... He took a power grab. He takes a power mm. grab. Kenneth may have been in exile because his brother Duff had been um, killed previously. Oh, same boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, same boat. Uh, so we've got a period of uncertainty with rival lines um, and two men claiming the throne at the same time. Mm. So Kenneth needs a way to get himself um, higher up the chain than Olaf, and he does this in 973 by making friends with Edgar the Peaceable. I thought it was just going to kill him. Well, ultimately, that's his aim, but he needs to be powerful enough that he is able to do that and oh, yeah. to establish dominance in Scotland. Mm. Um, so he'd made a few incursions into Northumbria to sort of show his force, mm. both to his supporters but also the English. So Kenneth was one of the sub-kings to row Edgar at Chester along the Dee, mm. and they then had some detailed talks afterwards in which Edgar acknowledged that Kenneth owned uh, the territory of Lothian, mm. the borders, and uh, presumably recognises him as king against Olaf. Okay, what does he give up in return for that? Um, I presume that Kenneth has to submit to Edgar and row okay. him. As yeah. we said, he rows him along the D. He's quite a... Just give us a lift, mate. Yeah. 
Mm. Give me a lift. I'll give you Lothian, and uh, that is cheap. Give you a shout out. Mm. So, in nine seven seven, Olaf is killed by Kenneth. How was he killed? Well, we don't know. That's oh. an awkward thing when we come to battle this. We don't know. But after this civil war, we have an extended period of peace. So mm. after all this division and dynastic conflict, Kenneth II is very much in charge. And mm. the kingdom's about as large as it has ever been. Right. Okay. So Kenneth, now in full control, decides he's going to sort out the succession system. Mm. So he decided that instead of it going brother to brother, cousin to cousin, third cousin to third cousin... It would go from father to son. Yes, great idea. We must have given him serious points for We that. were very pleased with this. And so he gets the nobles to agree that from now on it will go father to son. And thus his son, the future Malcolm II, will be the next king. Mm. But of course, if you're on a rival dynastic line and you're being written out of the succession, you're probably going to oppose this. Yeah. yeah. And indeed, that's what happens. The sons of Cullen and Duff, both coming of age now because they've been young at the start of Kenneth's reign, tensions are heightening and they find an ally in the form of Finella, whose uh, son had been killed by Kenneth II for some reason. The sons of Cullen and Duff... Yeah are now allied, even though their dads killed each other. It's not that they're allied so much as that they're both fighting against Kenneth II. So they they both need to kill Ken Yes. in order for them to be able to, to successfully kill each other. Yes. I think I'd have killed the smaller fish first. Well, perhaps, but ultimately the bigger fish is completely writing you out of having any royal significance. So if the big fish dies before the little fish, mm. and then the big fish's son <laughs> becomes king, uh, you've got an established yeah, yeah. pattern of... And you need the other little fish's help. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a woman called Finella whose son had been killed by Kenneth II. Yeah. And one of them, uh, one of the rivals of Kenneth allies with her, and they form a trap for Kenneth. He is enticed into Finella's house and persuaded to touch a booby-trapped statue. This guy. This guy. Ah. It's a lovely statue of a boy. Yeah. Kenneth tries to take an apple from it, but it's all put together with springs and whatnot so that when he touches the apple, he is filled full of arrows and killed on the spot. Can I go through my problems again one more time? What mm. a Heath Robinson contraption. Yeah. And it must have seen all the pulleys around him. And what if he didn't fancy an apple? Indeed. You might have thought it was a bit of art. Thought, oh, I can't touch that apple. It looks jolly real. Yeah, it's rubbish. Mm. I mean, it's fantastic, <laughs> yeah. but rubbish. So that was the end of Kenneth II. Mm. Now he was not followed by our next chap, Malcolm II, his son. But he put that into place. He put that into place, but because he was killed. Okay. There was yeah, a gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of Malcolm II becoming king in nine nine five when his father died. Mm. We have ten years of fighting with all the rival dynasties, so it all happens again. Oh, with Cullen and Duff's sons. Yes, yeah. so uh, we've got Constantine the Third initially, who is Malcolm's second cousin. So Malcolm is in Cumbria at this point, so he's getting an army together, and he's going to go up and kill Constantine the Third. Mm. But before he can do that, his first cousin, Kenneth the Third, kills Constantine the Third. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, you were talking about the big fish and the little fish. One of the little fish has killed the other little fish. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, Good now point. it's Malcolm II against Kenneth III. So, Malcolm has been raising his army. He comes back and there's a long period of civil war, relentless fighting against Kenneth III before finally they come to blows in 1005 and Malcolm defeats and kills Kenneth III. Great. So, Malcolm II becomes king. Good. Now, he's dealt with his enemies in Scotland. 
Mm. So he's now going to focus on England. Okay. From 991, um, Ethelred the Unready and the Saxons have been laid low by Viking raids and having to pay the Danegeld. Yeah. So Malcolm thinks, I've got a chance to really make an impression on the north of England. Mm. So um, he tries initially to capture Durham in 1006, but is unsuccessful. Mm. But then 1018, he defeats an English army at Carham, sort of on the, uh, on the border with England, which really helps to establish where Scotland ends and England begins. Okay, good. But after Ethelred, we ultimately have Canute. He's mm. a Viking ruler who conquers England in 1016, and he has a North Sea empire. He is a jolly big fish, isn't he? Is he is a jolly big fish. So he comes up to Scotland in about 1031, 1032. Um, don't seem to have actually fought a battle, but ultimately Malcolm does submit to him. Yeah, he just so. sort of swims up there, shows him the size of his flippers, Yeah, swims home. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So Malcolm has made peace with England. He's established the borders, but he's got a problem. He mm. doesn't have any sons. That's really bad news for Rex Factor. That it? is very bad news. Now, he does have daughters, mm. but at this early stage, when everything is so violent, there doesn't seem to be any question that a daughter could succeed no. to rule. Now, Malcolm at this point might have thought, well, let's go back for the alternating succession then because <sighs> I don't have any sons. But he is having none of that. He's very much his father's son. Mm. So he says, OK, what I'm going to do is marry off my daughters and then their sons, my grandsons, will rule in my place. Mm. But obviously he is going to face opposition from the dynastic rivals by trying to skip a generation and going straight to his grandson, Duncan. Yeah. So what does he do? Well, he just basically sets about killing all of his dynastic rivals to make sure that ultimately Duncan will succeed. Him. It's the only thing to do. It's the only thing to do. Kill yeah. everybody. Yeah, in the whole world, I see. So the chap that he's really got a problem with is Kenneth III's son, Boiter. I don't remember this man. Um, now, he links with the rebellious uh, territory of Murray mm. in northeast Scotland, sort of Aberdeenshire, and he marries his daughter, Gruoc, to the ruler of Murray, a chap called Gilcomgain, mm. and they produce a rival Scottish heir called Lullock. Ah, yeah, familiar with him. So Malcolm has got involved. He um, he kills off, he'd killed the original leader of Murray. He then gets Gilcomgain killed as well, kills various sons of Boiter and probably cousins and all sorts mm. of people. He's pretty much managed to do it. But? But then Macbeth becomes king of, of Murray, marries Gruach, and becomes the protector of Lullock. So Lullock, who is the real royal rival to Duncan, has now got a powerful protector in the form of Macbeth. And the only reason he couldn't kill Lullock is that he was, he was deep in this enemy territory we yeah. couldn't get to. What did everyone think of all this murder? Well, we just don't really know. They don't seem to have recorded it. Mm. I okay. guess people were too busy being killed or killing to... Or just trying to survive. Yeah, write it down. However, Malcolm uh, II, when he finally dies in 1034, fatally wounded uh, in an ambush at Glam's, he's about 80 years old. Wow. Fighting to the very end, and Duncan does succeed him. Fighting at 80? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Goodness me. He's a hardy old chap, is, uh, is Malcolm II. But surely the average lifespan must be half that in this yes. time. Yes. <laughs> And Malcolm II has done an awful lot to keep that life, average life expectancy down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. But he must have been a, such a novelty on the battlefield. People just looking and going, oh, don't give him a break. Going, oh, you got me, you got me. Um, that's, that's, quite, that's quite something. It's quite an effort. And he does succeed. Duncan does succeed him. And Duncan was his grandson? Yes, his grandson is the next king. Grand. Next up, David the First. Mm. 
Now, he was the son, as you said, of Malcolm III. Yeah. And Malcolm III um, had ruled for over 30 years with his wife, Margaret of Wessex, St. Margaret. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very successful reign, very important reign. But when he dies in 1093, there was a Gaelic reaction against yeah. that sort of anglicised court. And Malcolm's brother, Donald Bain, actually became king. Mm. So we had a period where Malcolm's sons were forced to go down to England under William Rufus and are kind of increasingly Normanized, have to submit to William in order to get support to mm. take the battle mm. to Donalbane. Right. So ultimately, Malcolm's line is restored, but at the cost of greatest, greater English intervention. Right. So David I is the youngest of all these sons. He grows up in England and rises to prominence under the reign of Henry I, mm. and he becomes one of his leading men after David's sister marries Henry I. So he's getting really, really into the um, English system there, isn't he? He wasn't universally popular when he became king in 1124, probably because he's seen as a Norman outsider, Mm. and he doesn't really venture much further north of the lowlands. So he is opposed by a bastard son of his elder brother, Alexander I. Mm. So it's Malcolm MacAlexander. And he allies with a grandson of the aforementioned Lullock. Oh, dear. A chap called Angus of Murray. So we've got an illegitimate son of one king allying with a grandson of uh, another king yeah and indeed in that rebellious territory of murray so davy's got people to defeat ultimately he is victorious angus of murray was killed in the battle of stracathro in 1130 and then henry the first thanks to that english alliance sends troops and ships to help get malcolm mac alexander captured in 1134 yes because and i don't mean to stretch this metaphor <laughs> even the big fish in scotland is one of those, like, sucker-on fish that you see on the bottom of a big shark in the form of Henry I. Henry I. Okay, right. Yep, yep, yep. Got you. And thereafter, David colonises Murray with castles and supporters, so it won't be yeah. as problematic in future. Yeah, great. So, he's king and he's successful in Scotland, but then a massive opportunity comes his way in the form of the anarchy. Because mm. when Henry I dies in 1135, he doesn't have any legitimate sons. Mm. Instead, he's just got a daughter, Matilda. Mm. Now, he does rule that she will be his successor, and the mm. nobles do agree to it. Yeah. But when he dies, her cousin Stephen takes the throne instead. Oh, treacherous Stephen. So, as the uncle of Matilda, David obviously has a honour to upkeep, and he invades England, northern England, on a number of occasions. Uh, what, looking to support Matilda or, or actually on it for his own gain? Well, that's something we'll come to uh, later okay. on. It's a bit dubious, probably mm. more out for his own gain than mm. anything else. But nevertheless, he invades in 1136 and 1138. Mm. On both occasions, we have treaties of Durham where Stephen first offered him Carlisle. Yeah, good prize. Then Cumberland and for his son, the earldom of Northumbria. Right. So he's actually got that owned by Scotland now. The earldom of Northumbria is Scottish, Carlisle is Scottish. Will that have any legitimacy if his preferred ally actually comes to power? Well, in 1141, Stephen was captured at Lincoln by Matilda, Mm. so it was all up in the air again. So what David decides to do is rush down to England and be like, oh, great, I was hoping this would happen. Mm, Well done, Tilly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Matilda is set to be crowned queen. David is there to be a key advisor for her, but people of London take against her and she is sent packing and running and David is sent packing with her. Yeah. But it's not a total disaster for David. Uh, on his way up, he takes control of Newcastle and Bamborough. Mm. Just, you know, yeah. I'll have this. I'm passing. <laughs> I might as well pop in. And um, 
the wars continue in England and David just takes advantage. Um, Scotland's borders are really now coming all the way down into Lancashire. Wow. Lancashire and Yorkshire. He's really re-write, re- redrawing the map of Britain. Wow. Um, he also increases his hold over southwest Scotland and Galloway, which mm-hmm. hasn't really yet become part of Scotland. And he installs a new Earl of Orkney, an Earl of Caithness, which is Norse territory. But mm. again, David's trying to He's, yeah, push make him back. it a bit more Scottish. And he also uh, oversees the Davidean Revolution, huge changes with sort of Norman-style church and state reform. So we've got monastic patronage, centralised government, economic expansion. Mm. All very impressive. But he does have a difficult end to his reign. He fails to capture York and Durham. Mm. The King of Norway takes back Orkney in 1151 by abducting the young Earl. And then his well-respected son, Henry, the one that was made Earl of Northumbria, dies in 1152. Uh. So David is forced to try and get support for his young grandsons to make oh, sure that again. they succeed instead. So like Malcolm II, he doesn't have to go and kill everybody in Scotland. Yeah. He should have done, shouldn't he? Yeah, why didn't he kill all his rivals like Malcolm? Well, there weren't really too many rivals in Scotland. The problem is that his young grandsons are going to have to defeat the next King of England, which will, of course, be... Oh, dear. Yeah, big Henry old II. Henry. So David dies at Carlisle Castle in 1153 at the grand old age of 70. That's pretty good as well. It's good. Finally, for the Group B monarchs, we have James the Fourth. Yes, yes, yes. So he was preceded by a number of Jameses. Mm. Three of them, indeed. Mm. All minorities. They showed early promise, but then there's rebellion and early violent deaths. Yeah. Trying to break this pattern, James the First had removed the powerful Albany Stuart cousins, but then was murdered by his rivals in the sewers at the age of forty-three. Mm-hmm. James the Second personally murdered the Earl Douglas. Oh yeah, and seemed to be very successful until he got blown up by his own cannon yes. at the age of twenty-nine. And then James the Third um, secured the Northern Isles, but suffered double rebellion from his nobles and brother. Very unpopular, and he is defeated in a rebellion and killed in fourteen eighty-eight at the age of 36. So he's got to do some re- uh, repair work to this name, James. And indeed, he was actually the putative head of the rebellion that uh, unseated his father. Ooh. Now, James was old enough to rule, just about at 15, but he decides to let others continue, learns from their mistakes, and um, although there's a bit of conflict for the next seven years, things are largely stable, but it does mean in 1485, when James does take over, he isn't tarnished by any of these divisions. Mm. So he comes to the fore doesn't have to kill off all the previous regents like his predecessor do. It's just a nice new start and everyone's quite pleased. He's very charming, he's cultured and he's popular with the public and nobles alike. Um, we've got a peaceful majority and pretty stable government. He deals with the rebellious Lord of the Isles, the Western Isles. He forfeits that title to the crown and then in 1501 to 1507 he defeats the last Lord of the Isles, the almost brilliantly named Donald Duff. Brilliant. I miss that guy. We should do a little special on him. <laughs> um, now, there was a new Tudor dynasty mm. in England at this point. Henry VII had uh, taken the throne from Richard III. Yeah. Um, now, we don't yet have a relationship between the Stuarts and the Tudors. Okay. So England and Scotland aren't yet on terms, and James IV wants to get to that point. Yeah, otherwise all GCSE textbooks would not read <laughs> the same. So James IV causes them problems by championing the cause of Perkin Warbeck, who is claiming to be one of the princes in the Tower, and thus the rightful King of England. 
What? Hang, sorry, I thought he wanted to get in with the Tudors. He does, but he needs to put pressure on them to acknowledge that he is powerful enough that they have to come to an accord. Oh, so he's trying to be an irritant at the start so that yeah. they can pay him some attention. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like my son. Uh, so, uh, after this, 1502-1503, we have peace with England, and James IV's reward is marriage to Henry VII's eldest daughter, Margaret Tudor. That's a hell of a reward. It's a very big reward. And he is absolutely dominant now. 1507, the Western Isles have been subdued. He's got a great marriage. The Pope gives him a special sword and hat. Mm, nice. He's popular with the nobles and subjects alike, and he is overseeing this glittering Renaissance court. So, uh, how long after David is he? Quite a long time, is it? Oh, uh, yes. So, David dies 1153. So oh, ages. Yeah, 400-odd. Yeah. So, it's another like a Renaissance like David had. Mm. It's... Oh, but it is it's oh, no, the, it's the Renaissance. Renaissance, isn't it? Mm. It's not like just a, a revival. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Renaissance with a big R. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, of course, there are problems abroad. Mm. Uh, Spain establishes a holy league with Venice and the Pope against France. Yeah. And Scotland has a natural allegiance to France with the old alliance. So James is sort of hoping that he can... Mm you know, support France, but he wants to mediate for peace because he doesn't want to get involved in a difficult war. Yeah. But this is difficult to maintain when the new King of England, Henry VIII, gets involved. Yeah. He wants to be the new Henry V. He wants to conquer France and be a glorious hero. Mm. So Henry VIII decides to join the Holy League in 1511 and relations between James and Henry quickly deteriorate. But they're related now, aren't they? They are related. How? They are brothers-in-law. Oh, Right, but okay. we're not in an Edward the First, Alexander the Third situation. Mm. These are not close brothers-in-law right. by any means whatsoever. Henry is determined just to invade France, and whatever James tries to say doesn't work. So in 1513, Henry does invade France, and James feels duty bound to invade England. God, that isn't that's. Oh dear. So in 1513, we have the Battle of Flodden. The Scots suffered a terrible defeat, losing numerous nobles, thousands of men, and indeed, at the age of 40, James IV was killed in a heroic final charge. Oh, that's tricky. That's interesting that we've given him the Rex Factor, and for normally a big battle, if they die... Mind you, it wasn't one of... It wasn't the battle. It would There would have been others to sort of... You know, it wasn't like a, a Hastings-type scenario. No, so it's not that the English invaded and conquered Scotland mm. with this battle. It was that the Scots invaded and just yeah. everybody died. Battleliness! So, with each of the factors, I'll do them in uh, ascending order of score. Okay. So, for battleliness, our lowest scoring monarch was Kenneth II. Johnny Green Giant. He got 11 out of 20 for battleliness, which isn't terrible. Mm. Uh, 11th out of all the uh, Rex Factor contenders, 9th out of the 13 Rex Factor winners. Mm. Um, his plus points. Mm. He plunders Cumbria and Benicia. <laughs> <laughs> I love that this programme makes it that that's a plus point. Uh, apparently captured a local prince in Benicia, mm. which is quite good. Yeah. Where's Benicia again? Uh, so that's the northern part of Northumbria, so sort of uh, Bambra, sort of. Ah, oh, okay. Very pleasant. <laughs> um, so he gets treasure and plunder, but he also increases his reputation in Scotland for the civil war against Olaf. Yeah. And, of course, in England, to make a, the peaceful thing, this is a chap that I might need to have a conversation with. Yes, okay. Does, and nothing's taken away by the fact that he was manning the oars? 
Nothing seems to be manning, mm. uh, manning away. Nothing seems to be taken away in terms of how it affects Kenneth in Scotland. Yeah, it's perhaps what he need the pill he needs to swallow in order to get some of the uh, encouraging things from Edgar, such as Lothian, such as acknowledgement. And sure enough, in nine seven seven, a few years later, Olaf is killed and the civil war is won. Brilliant. He also erects some walls on the uh, fourth to discourage any counter raiding and also helping to cement the borders mm. with England. Mm. And uh, the territory of Scotland is probably as large as it's ever been at this point. It probably extends from the Tweed to the Pentland Firth. Strathclyde, Cumbria, is something of a vassal state. Mm. And Lothian has been acknowledged as Scottish by Edgar the Peaceable. Right. But So this is sort of stuff that has been built on. He's building on it. It's mm. not like he went out and extended nowhere. it. Yeah. But nevertheless, it's all yeah. going pretty well. And this is a period in England where we've got a lot of Viking activity, particularly from 991 and the Battle of Maldon. Mm. But the Vikings don't seem to have been any kind of threat to the Scots and Kenneth II in this period. Did he have an alliance or just... He didn't have an alliance, but apparently Sven Forkbeard was taken in by Kenneth after being cast out from his Danish homeland. Ah, so maybe they're just busy mates. Wow. Okay, cool. Against him... And you picked up on this when we did his biography. We don't know what actually happened to Olaf. Mm. Was it a great battle with Kenneth holding his sword aloft before bringing it down on Olaf's head? Or is it a little bit too murky? Could it have been a palace coup that Kenneth engineers and actually takes the throne by slightly more nefarious means? Could have been the flu. Could have just been the flu and then Kenneth swoops in and takes the throne. We don't. Either way, have evidence of a great battle that Kenneth wins against no. Olaf. No. Um, when he plundered Bit- uh, Bitten, when he plundered Britain, apparently his foot soldiers were slain with very great slaughter at a place called Moynva Corner, um, and that actually might have been a cause of why the civil war goes on for quite a number of years. If Kenneth has an early defeat, ah, yeah, he loses all his troops, needs to rebuild. Yeah, so maybe that's why he then has to do a bit more, impress Edgar, and build mm. from the south up. perhaps because he started badly and you asked before do we take anything away from him the fact that he is one of these kings rowing Edgar Mm. on the D yes he is defeating Olaf but it's quite a big sign of not being the top dog if you're actually rowing another king yeah and that comes back to bite other Scottish kings Mm. Edward I would certainly have taken note of this and Mm. thought yep see Scotland belongs to me. Yeah, and he'd have a good point. <laughs> and indeed, there was one occasion by legend where Kenneth apparently noted how odd it was that so many provinces would submit to so small a man. Because apparently Edgar was a short chap. No way! Uh, and Edgar wasn't very happy about this, took Kenneth to a wood, gave him a sword and challenged him to a fight. Yeah, I remember this now. So then Kenneth thinks, oh, maybe not, backs down, apologises, submits again. <sighs> Edgar's the top dog. When did he kill him? Just because well, it would maybe have been assumed wise. that Edgar would have killed him. Oh, right. Or maybe it's just a story made up by English chroniclers to say, look how strong and mighty we are. Yeah. Okay. Either way, we do have a sense of Kenneth as being an under king. Yeah, 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 definitely. And it's one of the few times that, that Scots kings are pragmatic yeah. in that sense <laughs> that they actually just say, right, okay, let's stop the this huge picture that we're looking at over centuries mm. just to actually get. This next couple of decades sorted. Yeah, good subjectivity, but less mm. impressive battliness. Next up is James the Fourth. He got twelve and a half uh, out of twenty, eighth of all the monarchs, seventh out of the Rex Factor winners. Mm. 
So he actually has quite a few things on his side. In 1488, as we said, he was the putative head of that rebellion against his father, mm. which does end with victory at Sockyburn and does end with James III being killed and James IV becoming king. Yeah. Um, against the Lord of the Isles, from 1488 to 93, we had a long period of conflict and lawlessness. James forfeits the title to the crown and uh, sent a large fleet to receive homage from all the local lords. James forfeits? Makes forfeit. Oh, say. okay, right. He doesn't say no, that. He doesn't yeah. say, Actually, you guys have it. Yeah, I don't mind. You. You. <laughs> and that worked for a while until 1501, when the last man to claim the lordship, Donald Duff, <laughs> leads a rebellion. But... By 1507, another big fleet uh, has been sent in and Duff is captured at Stornoway Castle and the rebellion is ended. The Lord of the Isles have been pacified. Good. That's big points. We had Perkin Warbeck and a little adventure into England. Mm -hmm. So Perkin was claiming to be uh, one of the princes in the tower and James needs leverage against uh, England and indeed Spain, who England are negotiating with because they're trying to get that marriage between Arthur and Catherine of Aragon. So James needs to show that he is a man to take seriously. So he adopts the cause of Perkin Warbeck and uh, leads an invasion of northern England. Wow. It doesn't achieve a huge amount, but... uh, And indeed, he then sends Perkin packing once he's sort of really got what he needs from him. (laughs) So who's he invading at this point? Henry VII? Henry VII. But as you said, it does then work out for him. Mm. They do get a peace treaty and he does get to marry... Mm. Henry the seventh daughter, and ultimately that will involve James the fourth great grandson, <laughs> James the sixth, becoming king of England. Oh uh, yes! So this really oh, does yes. pay dividends. Oh yeah, yeah, that really does. Okay, I hadn't considered that. The biggie for you mm. is that he founds. Uh, well, he basically forms a Scottish navy. Oh. He founded two new harbours and personally selected the locations, going out in a rowing boat and deciding the best. Uh, yeah area along the coast and he spent thousands and thousands of pounds building magnificent ships and the most notable of these the great michael was the largest warship in europe at that time yes i remember this blowing my mind Mm. can i just say it has blown my mind again (laughs) he either built hired or captured 38 ships Mm. and uh, this basically really makes him a major player on the european scene he's got a powerful navy that can Mm. take anyone on yeah that's at the time scotland I was such a small, let's be honest, a small player in Europe. Mm. So that's like them all of a sudden uh, building the HMS Queen Elizabeth that's yeah. around now. <laughs> yeah. A small kid with a massive gun. Yeah. Mm. Now, in the 1513 campaign, which ended in the disaster of Flodden, um, he had a very large mar- army, heavy siege guns. It's probably the largest and best prepared Scots army to invade England. Mm. He captures Norham, Ettel, and Ford castles mm. along the way. And at Flodden, although he loses, although um, he dies, he is in the thick of the fighting when he dies. He was apparently within a spear length of the English commander. And this is when he's probably maybe seen that things are going wrong or he's simply, because of his love of chivalry, just going in for one grand heroic charge. He's the last king to die in battle in the British Isles. Oh, Rex, fact. That's great. It's very... um, uh... Battle of Bosworth. Yes. But the Battle of Flodden ultimately is a bit of a disaster for Mm. the Scots. They had superior position, superior numbers, but they were outmaneuvered. Yeah. They got their lovely big guns, but they ended up in a bad position and then got taken out by the English ones. They got these lovely new Swiss pikes, these really long 
spear type things but they hadn't been properly trained to use them so they couldn't keep formation in the oh, boggy dear. conditions then they're going to be more of a hindrance aren't they great big things indeed james 10 earls nine laws of parliament one archbishop the lord high treasurer lord admiral and the lord constable of scotland all killed along with thousands of others mm, even the uh, even the head gardener of stirling castle apparently no way yeah they started calling up the gardeners yeah i mean it, it, it definitely you'd call up the aa before the gardeners do you <laughs> as far as emergency it's yeah. army police <laughs> fire service aa cubs yeah. gardeners <laughs> <laughs> And indeed, James makes mistakes. He's outfoxed by Surrey in terms of the uh, manoeuvrings. James could have attacked earlier on while Surrey was making his manoeuvre. Mm. Um, and he does have a reputation for putting himself in danger. He's unable to direct the battle. He puts himself at risk. Yeah. I mean, someone's got to be the last person to die. But it does mm. make you think that perhaps the age of uh, King charging in has gone for a reason. He's much better suited to be that general at the back, mm. as you say, and him not not taking that responsibility and instead wanting to be heroic, heroic, Mm. not not so good. Next up, we've got our serial killer, Malcolm II. Oh, good. He scored 13 out of 20. He's ranked 7th of Mm. all the monarchs, 6th of the Rex Factor winners. Mm. His first biggie is in 1005, the Battle of Monziverd. Nice. He challenges his rival, Kenneth III, to a winner-takes-all showdown. Well, just one man-on-man battle. Well, I presume that they had a battle, but it's not clear if it's an armies of 20,000 or probably more likely a smaller fight of their retainers. Oh, I'm imagining them stripped to the waist. I don't know why they have to be stripped to the waist, <laughs> but, you know, like <laughs> circling each other. And uh, so, presumably, Malcolm II personally kills Kenneth III. He certainly defeats him in battle and takes the throne. Mm, brilliant. According to our old friend John of Forden, mm. soon after his coronation, a large Norse fleet raided Scotland, but Malcolm destroys them in a night attack. Wicked. Um, and he then makes uh, a bit of an alliance with the Vikings in Orkney. He marries his second daughter to the Earl. Um, and then when that chap is killed at, at the Battle of Clontarf, Malcolm ensures that that Earl's son, i.e. his own grandson, Thorvin the Mighty, mm, succeeds. Brilliant. Uh, and so his grandson is the Earl and indeed is loyal to him. So when Olaf Tryggvason tried to get Thorvin to pledge him his allegiance, Thorvin says, no, I'm already sworn to Malcolm, King of Scots. Murray was a very tricky territory for Malcolm and many of the Scottish leaders. Um, the initial leader, Finlay, uh, rebelled, so Malcolm had him killed. Mm. And uh, numerous successes as well. Uh, like we said, when he was trying to make Duncan King, so he had Gilcom gain. Boyd's son, grandson, all sorts of people. Mm. Not all necessarily in battles, but he knows how to get somebody killed. Mm. Yes, certainly does that. In 1018, we have the Battle of Carum, where he allies with Owain of Cumbria and raids into Northumbria. Mm. And then a Benician army comes along to deal with him, but Malcolm inflicts a decisive defeat on them. Uh, but Benicia, you were saying, is... So he doesn't conquer Benicia, but what he's able to do is raid into their territory... Right. then defeat the army. And what okay. that probably does, particularly with Canute coming up uh, a decade later, is help to cement the border. Right, okay, so it's it's the... Rather than the achievement of actually beating Benicians, it's what the outcome is. Mm. is important, okay. And after uh, this battle, he uh, followed up by distributing gifts to lots of churchmen, mm. perhaps as part of a campaign to annex Durham and Northumbria in future. Yeah. Um, which maybe he would have been able to do if he'd had a son, but because he doesn't, he then has to worry about killing everybody else in Scotland. <laughs> but after Carum, perhaps because of it, um, Owain of Cumbria dies 
and the kingship of Cumbria is left empty. So Malcolm was said to have made his grandson Duncan a puppet ruler, or at the very least chosen the next king. So he's established dominance over Cumbria. And set Duncan up well if he's got some experience. Exactly. Um, now, Caithness and Sutherland uh, in northern Scotland are still Viking, but they now acknowledge Malcolm as their overlord. Murray has been defeated. Strathclyde, Cumbria is a vassal state. We've got his grandson as the Earl of Orkney. The Irish chroniclers called him the High King of Scotland. Ooh. So although he's not necessarily conquered all of these territories, they're all bowing down to him. Okay, that's very good. That's very good, yep. Against him, he does try to take Durham early on in the reign in 1006, um, but uh, suffers a rather bad defeat. A great many of their nobles were left dead, say the sources. So he's perhaps lucky that he's killed off all of his rivals and the English are too busy getting killed by Vikings, that he doesn't actually suffer mm. any repercussions from this. Okay. And we don't know exactly what happens, but he is made to submit to Canute. Uh, in the flipper shelf. Yes. Now, did Canute bring an army? Did they do any fighting? Was there ever any intention of Canute going up and conquering Scotland? Did Malcolm show force that meant that Canute wasn't able to conquer? We don't know exactly what happens, but to some extent, at least, Malcolm submits to Canute. Yeah. Yeah. Again, is it a bit of pragmatism? I sort of think that that Canute would have had Scotland on his mind. He'd mm. got everything else. Yeah. You know, if it's North Sea Empire, mm. he want that final bit of the circle. Yeah. Um, but what was he doing at the time? Was he trying to cement his leadership down south? Well, I think actually he might have been heading off for a bit of a jolly in Rome. He went on a pilgrimage commute. Oh. So maybe he just wanted to make sure that... It was like clearing up his intro before his holidays. Yeah, just make sure the northern border's secure. Make sure Malcolm's not mm. going to do any funny business. Just show off his flippers and go, yeah, yeah. so... Yes. I so I think I would probably wouldn't give um Canute any points for that. Mm. So in the same way I'm not gonna take any points from Malcolm, uh, Malcolm for that. Mm. But it's one it's something to bear in mind, isn't it? Mm. So our top battleiness man in this group is David the First. He scored a whopping sixteen out of twenty. Wowzers. So that's the second best uh score for battleiness in the Scottish Rex Factor. Is it? Mm. Yeah. In his uh, favour, he put down a, a rebellion in 1124 when he mm. became King of Scots. An army of Murray was defeated in battle in 1130 and their leader, Angus of Murray, was killed. Mm. And then 1130-34, to 34, Malcolm Mac Alexander, um, the illegitimate son of his elder brother, was also defeated and captured. Right. And he followed that up by uh, building various castles in Murray. He built a priory at Urquhart and he made one of his closest allies the Earl of Murray. Mm. So it's been almost sort of Edward I tactics, really. He's just sort of building these great castles, Wicked. putting people in place and being like, right, from now on, I've got a foothold in Murray. So yeah. if it kicks off again, yeah. I've already got a start on this. So he, but are we to assume that he's he's got Murray sorted? He's got it for his reign. He doesn't have any more troubles right. again. It's not the last we hear of Murray, but it's the last we hear of it under David. Mm. Um, Orkney and Caithness, he married the Earl of Atoll to the daughter of the Earl and then made their young son the Earl of Orkney. Mm. And because he's so young, David is thus really effectively in charge. Okay, this is just what Malcolm did. Unfortunately, he has a similar sort of problem in that it's hard to make this permanent. So actually, the uh, King of Norway comes along, kidnaps the young Earl and just says, right, I'm taking back control. He probably doesn't care because he's got much, uh, much bigger, not bigger fish. He is a big fish. He's a big fish. We've got too much from the fish. He can't be frying fish. It's no, he can't be. Complicated. Cannibalism. He's got the Scotto-Northumbrian realm. 
Because of the anarchy in England, he takes full advantage. He gains Cumbria and the earldom of Northumbria. So his territory extends down to Newcastle on the east and Skipton on the west. Wow. And he even marches on York in 1149. So this is by far the biggest extent of Scottish territory in history. But in this point, it's unlike Kenneth II... Mm. The, he's actively gaining this land. Actively gaining this land. He's basically ruling from Carlisle Castle. That's his actual base, what, which would now obviously be England. Yeah. So, you know, even you know the likes of Robert the Bruce, they have their big victories, but in terms of territory, this is the best it ever gets. And as a little cherry on top of that cake, in 1149, the future Henry II was knighted at Carlisle in a lavish ceremony by David I of Scotland. And Henry makes, the young Henry makes an oath to recognise Cumbria and Northumbria as Scottish if he becomes king. Did he? No, (laughs) but (laughs) that's after David dies. Yeah, okay. But this is a major role reversal. When we think the start of David's reign, he was just a protégé of Henry I. Yeah. At the end of his reign, he is the one knighting the grandson of Henry I, the future Henry II Rex Factor winner. David is the great power that the future English king is What a reversal. Hmm. Goodness me. Now, you might be surprised that we'd have anything to say against him. But early on, all of those sort of victories against rebellions in Scotland, they're basically all sorted out for him by Henry I. Yes. So, yes, it's clever to, if you've got an English army to bring to the fore, to to bring an English army to the fore. But, you know, it's not quite as impressive as him actually sorting it all out for himself. Yeah, it's not going to be... The Scots themselves aren't going to think it's that great. No, he gets into a fight with some people and gets his older brother to come and sort it out for him. Um, He marches on Durham in 1136, but Stephen prevented him from capturing it. 1141-42, he tried to have his Chancellor installed as the Archbishop as a step to annexation, but again was foiled. Similarly, 1149, he marched on York with the future Henry II uh, as part of his army. Really? Yeah, he marches with him. Huh. But again... Stephen gets an army up there, he isn't able to take York, and he also has another attempt at installing his candidate as Archbishop of York, as with Durham, he's unsuccessful. So Henry's, Henry's marching with him because he's trying to defeat Stephen. Mm. So Henry's learning from him as well in battle. Exactly. Not God. so successfully on this occasion, no. unfortunately. Um, and really, how impressive is this incredibly impressive acquisition of territory. <laughs> yeah, because it's the anarchy. It's the anarchy. He doesn't do any of it really by great battles. It's just because of the divisions in England. And with Henry II to come, particularly, unfortunately, with David's success as being young boys, yeah. it all goes back. It's it? not going to last very long. And in fact, the only real great battle of this period, the Battle of the Standard in 1138, David's got this huge army of about 16,000 against 10,000 Englishmen. Um, but the English are better armed and better disciplined, and they inflict a really terrible rout on the Scots, something like 10,000 Scottish casualties in just three and a half hours. Where, when was this in his reign? When he was... So that's 1138, during the anarchy. This is the second time he invaded northern England. Tr- going for York, was it? Just, just having for, a go. Going for whatever <laughs> yeah, he can lay okay. his hands on. Now, it's one of the funny things with David that he suffers this terrible defeat and then he makes peace with Stephen and Stephen gives him lots of territory. So even when he loses, he's actually still been given territory. So he's gaining territory, which is the primary aim, really, of battliness, but he's not actually winning battles to do it. He's failing upwards. Yeah, he that's, is. That's what I did in my workplace. Yeah. So there we've got them. They're, they're an interesting bunch of battle, battley chaps. They've all got quite big 
caveats to their name, really. They do. They do. Really big caveats. Like, you've got Kenneth. Great. Well, okay, but no evidence in Edgar. Yeah. That's the big caveat. James the si- uh, James the Fourth, sorry. Great, but Flodden. Yeah. Malcolm the Second. Uh, great, but, you know, no extension there. Yeah. Uh, and David. Great, but how good was it? Yeah, he's like, it's, in one sense, how could you not be amazing for battliness if you basically split Britain in half? And yet, if you took him on in battle, you'd fancy your chances of winning. Yeah, but he's doing it on the easiest setting. He's playing the <laughs> level on, you know, on beginner. Yeah. And failing, but the opponents are too distracted for it to count for anything, so it just goes, oh, yeah. heats it up. So it's interesting. What's better? Is it better to have that great territory despite losing the battle? You'd rather lose the battle and gain the territory than, well, I mean, James IV also lost the battle, but he <laughs> he gets yeah. killed. But James IV perhaps is more heroic because he's there in person fighting yeah. this, this great ending. He has the navy. He's got the Lord of the Isles. He's got a lot more to show for it. But David actually comes out on top as mm. of the campaign as a whole. Mm. Mm. I think I know how I'm going to score this one. Can you give me a minute here? Oh, oh no, sure. I won't write that down. Well, I'll write it down, but out of um, <laughs> eye shot. Eye shot? Eye sight. Ear shot, eye... <laughs> okay. Scandal. So, from first to last, David mm. I has the bottom score of these monarchs for Scandal. Yeah. He only got six out of 20. That's awful. 24th of all the Scottish monarchs and 11th of the 13 Rex Factor winners. I'm surprised we got two below him. Well, I mean, all we got to say about him was he's a bit of a slippery character. Mm. So he connived with Henry I of England against his own brother, Alexander I, to get some territory in the 1110s. Mm. Um, Technically, he was owed it by the older, older brother, but he ended up getting more than he was actually entitled to. That's just pretty good work, isn't it? It's pretty good work, but it wasn't very popular in Scotland. Oh. That's another reason why perhaps he wasn't so universally mm. loved when he became king, because he was seen as being a bit sneaky mm. McSneakerson. <laughs> um, and then in the anarchy, he's very opportunistic. He makes an immediate attack on Stephen, but then is very happy to make treaties without any reference to his niece Matilda. Yeah, which it was all under the pretext of doing. Yeah, but then yeah. rushes to London to support her in 1141, mm. but then goes back... And uh, in 1138, chroniclers report that he inflicted terrible violence on civilians with cutting open pregnant women, babies on spikes. Babies on spikes. Priest heads on crucifixes. Usual drill. Usual sort of stuff. Which, you know, it's not completely lacking in bad stuff, but it's not... I'm sort of to expect it. If if these chronicles are written by the English, presumably? Uh, Yes, those ones are English, Yeah. yeah. And against him... Um, according to David's biographer, not only was he entirely faithful to his wife when she was alive, but after she died, he was faithful to her, and even in his dreams, he was faithful to his wife. Well, well how do we know that? Well, apparently Aylred knew what was in David's dreams, and it was not other women. <laughs> Next up, Kenneth II. He gets 11 out of 20. He was the 13th uh, overall in Rex Factor, the 7th best of the Rex Factor winners mm-hmm. for Scandal. Um We've got it pretty widely accepted that uh, Kenneth was responsible for the death of the previous monarch, Olaf. Yeah. Um, but it is possible, and this is why it's a, counted against him for battliness, but perhaps good for scandal, that if there wasn't a great battle in which Olaf was defeated, maybe Olaf was actually the true king all along. Yeah. But Kenneth takes him out in some kind of coup 
and then rewrites history like Stalin, just tries to blur mm. Olaf out of the picture. Mm, early photoshopping, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also, when we have his uh, magnificent death at the hands of the statue, mm. uh, oh, Fe- yeah. Fenella, whose son had been murdered by him, entices him into her house to look at the statue... We can only presume that Kenneth was expecting something other than being uh, filled full of arrows by yeah. a bizarre statue. Yeah. Aha! Uh-huh. Did he know that he she was the mother of the murdered chap? Presumably. Wow. Yes. Wow, he was stupid. Hmm. So that just gives us a little hint. Yeah, of, maybe uh, a bit something. But ultimately, there's no actual direct evidence yeah. of any naughtiness in the bedroom. Slightly better than Kenneth, with a score mm. of 12 out of 20, was Malcolm II. Mm. The eighth best in all of Scottish Rax Factor, the fifth in the Rax Factor winners. Mm. The biggie for him is uh, encapsulated in his nickname, Foreigner, the Destroyer. Oh, brilliant. And as we established in the podcast, the Destroyer of Lives. Yeah, uh, yes, of course, mass murder. With his lovely kill list on his card mm. to secure... His grandson's succession, he just sets about murdering a very large proportion of his extended family tree. How are you going to get better than this? Well, I mean, there are a lot of victims. We've got Kenneth III, who is his predecessor as king, and his cousin, who he kills in person. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, Kenneth III's son, Grim. That is actually his name? His name was Grim, yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to... Th- uh... No, it wasn't a grim death. Well, I mean, it probably was a grim death. How, how was it? We don't know. Also grim. We don't know, he just... Okay. It's hard to keep up with. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It just crossed him off. Uh, Finlay, who's the ruler of Murray in 1020. Mm. And then Gilcom Gain, who was his successor and was killed in 1032. Yeah. Boyt's grandson in 1033. Yeah. Various others as well. And indeed, according to the Annals of Ulster in 1032, Gilcom Gain, the mormer of Murray, was burned together with 50 people. So it's not just this targeted uh, campaign of assassinations. There's collateral damage going on wow. here as well. He's just he sees a target and he sends in the nukes. Yeah, just in case any of them might have been relatives. It's a bit like whack a mole with him, you know, when they all pop up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a son of that one. Get that one as well. Son of the sun. Get that one as well. Was he not related? Well, no, probably, sure. probably same color hair. Can we not just get a bigger mallet and just take them all out <laughs> in one go? Turn the machine off. So even in an incredibly violent age, Malcolm has a reputation for being bloodthirsty and ruthless. Yeah, yeah, pretty bad, even for a Scottish king. <laughs> yeah. Against him is that we don't have any evidence of anything untoward in the bedroom. He's not a rounded character, is he? No. He, he needs some yang with that ying. Or some wang with that ying. Oh, oh very nice. Very nice. So our top-scoring monarch for scandal in this group was James the Fourth. Mm. He got 17 out of 20, and he is the top-scoring Scottish monarch for scandal. Ooh, okay. So, in his favour, we have Patro Regicide, because in 1488 he was the head of the rebellion that ended with his father, James III, being killed. Oh. And it was an official inquiry into what happened to James III, and it concluded simply that James III happened to be slain. (laughs) That's the best whitewash. Yeah. It's like sort of Russian report into uh, into a journalist's yeah. death or something. Just died. Died. You know. You what know how people you die of old age. This was just died of young age. It's not a problem. Yeah. Uh, and James apparently wore an iron chain uh, in penance for the rest of his life. That is an admission, isn't it? Seems a bit sniffy. Mm. Um, the Archbishopric of St Andrews, James appointed his younger brother. 
to be the archbishop in 1497, mm. and he was underage, so he wasn't you know 18 at this point. So not only did it invalidate his younger brother's claim to the throne, clever, but um, because he was young, it meant that James got to keep the estates and revenues of the archbishopric. <laughs> Brilliant. Now in 1504, his brother died. So James appointed his own illegitimate 11-year-old son to be archbishop instead. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay, I mean, the last guy was young. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But this guy, he's not even, he's not just young, he's an illegitimate yeah. <laughs> son. Goodness me. To the highest church office in the land. That must have faced such opposition, surely. It doesn't seem to have done. I guess you know that cheeky character. A bit of a wink. Oh, James. <laughs> oh, James. You know that's not oh. quite what we do in the church, but all right. <laughs> and he also has numerous mistresses, mm. resulting in uh, seven illegitimate children, or at least seven acknowledged illegitimate children. Mm. So when Margaret Tudor became queen and came to Scotland, she found at Stirling that there was a nursery filled with James's... <laughs> Wow. Legitimate children, so ah, he's looking after them. I remember this from that book that Philip I had to Gregory. read. Yeah, yeah. Um, and apparently, um, the nobles helped to maintain his minority at the start of the reign by basically just plying him with women, right? And apparently, he enjoys the company of prostitutes. Good. This is this is very good, isn't it? So it's funny with James because in a way we didn't have an awful lot to say about him, but we've got sort of murdering his father. We've got appointing. <laughs> Um, boys to be the Archbishop of St Andrews yeah, and we've got lots and lots of mistresses I sort of think that perhaps it's not it's not quite as shocking as Malcolm no but it's more fun it's more rounded yeah there's a bit of a Charles II about him yeah you know he's got all these illegitimate children but he's got a nursery and he's looking after them yeah. it's quite nice about it yeah <laughs> he takes ownership of his um, faults <laughs> yeah okay there's not quite enough murder, perhaps. Yeah, maybe if we had a bit more direct evidence about what happens to James III, yeah. but I suspect he probably wasn't directly responsible. And He was only 15 at the time. He might have been more of a puppet than a... Yeah, and he just felt guilty about not trying to stop it yeah. with age. He could look back on it. And he wears the chain. Hmm. So, I mean, Malcolm wouldn't have worn a chain for anyone. No, he would have put it round their neck and told <laughs> them what yeah. he thought about that. Yeah. No guilt with Malcolm II. No. Job to be done. <laughs> so how you th- how, without uh, giving oh, it away, yeah. how do you sort of see them comparing off against each other? There's two biggies, two weak ones, mm. and it's just a decision of what type of scandal mm. I prefer. I know which type I prefer, <laughs> but... Mm, which one is uh, Which one shocks you more? That's mm. the question, isn't it? Subjectivity. So, perhaps not surprisingly, the bottom of uh, the Group B for subjectivity is the killer, the destroyer of oh, lives, yeah, of Malcolm II. Yeah. He got the paltry 5 out of 20 for That's subjectivity. Good. 25th of all the Rex Factor monarchs and 13th of 13 for the Rex Factor winners. Yeah. yeah. All we had in his favour was that in 1012, he established a uh, new Episcopal see at Mortlach, where he <sighs> defeated the Vikings. Right. And um, he also gave royal revenues from Biffy, or Buchan, to a small monastic community at Old Deer and distributed offerings to clergy and churches after his win at Carum. Hang on, he gave Biffy to an Old Deer? <laughs> yes. What does this mean? <laughs> I don't understand those words at all. <laughs> it's a place, basically. He gave one place to another place? He gave royal revenues from one place to a monastic community. Oh, God. In another place. <laughs> right. And uh, he was called the honour of all the West of Europe by Irish chroniclers when he died. Mm. But that might just have been a way of acknowledging that he was powerful. And 
scared. Yeah. Against him, um, nominating his young grandson flared up all the old tensions of the succession conflict yeah, yeah. and just leads to a lot more war and violence. Although Duncan did become king, so he yeah. wins, but, but yeah. at the cost of lots and lots of lives. So apart from the odd religious endowment, which may have been politically motivated as much yeah. as anything else, it's a way of extending his influence. Um, his reign really just consists of bloody battle and murder. He sounds like Begbie from Trainspotting to me. <laughs> yeah. He's um, he's just just a, he's a psychopath. He's a killer. That's what he does. Yeah. Better than him, his father, Kenneth II. We jump right up, fourteen out of twenty. Goodness. Ninth of all the uh, monarchs and ninth of the Rex Factor winners. Mm. Um, he brings a lot of stability to Scotland. So from nine seven seven to nine. Uh, five, Scotland's completely at peace and Kenneth is completely unchallenged. Hmm. So before him, we'd had this extended, turbulent period of dynastic conflict and upheaval. All his predecessors had been murdered by their rivals. Kenneth II, very, very stable and steady. Yeah, good stuff. That's what we're looking for in this subjectivity business. Um, he has that alliance with Edgar. Um, Edgar grants him some estates in England, apparently, so he'd got mm. somewhere to stay if he came for a jolly. <laughs> and some pocket money, presumably, coming in. We've got peaceful borders established, and pretty much in Scotland's favour, with Lothian being ceded, and Scotland mm. not having to give very much in return, apart from a rowing trip across the river. Yeah, nice. And um, this is all despite the fact that Anglo-Saxon England is at its peak and its most powerful. Uh, so, you know, we might expect in this period a Scottish king to really come under the cosh, yeah. but instead... He actually gets a pretty good deal out of it. And we do have the succession. He's the first monarch to really look to the future in this sense and think, look, this system is crazy. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've got a um, He heard how Otto the Great, the Holy Roman Emperor, had uh, the nobles recognise his son. So Kenneth decrees this system for Scotland and the vast majority of the nobles agree to it. Yeah, fab. Against him, of course, is that by institutionalising primogeniture, this means that those that don't agree with it have got to take very direct action in response. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Consequently, Kenneth was murdered, and it took his son, Malcolm II, uh, ten years to overcome two rival branches of the family. Mm. So by attempting to have this secure transition from father to son, we got ten years of civil war, and then his son ends up killing everybody in sight to actually make oh, this reality. Oh, that was Malcolm, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so it's actually not another 200 years until we do have a father-to-son succession. Someone had to do it, though, didn't they? Someone had to make that first stab. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like it was a, a, a familial just drive that yeah. he wanted to make it happen, and Malcolm definitely wanted mm. to make it happen. But at least he started the motion that the Exactly. He got the vision that, yeah. that ultimately came to the fore. In second place in this group, with 18 out of 20, is David I. Mm. Second in all of Scottish Rax Factor, as well as this group. In his favour, we have a lot of stability in Scotland. After 1134 and those internal divisions, there was no further unrest or rebellion or anything like that. Mm. And English chroniclers noted what a contrast there was between how it was in England to how it was in Scotland. What? Because... Sorry, speaking with my mouthful <laughs> of pen. I've got a pen in my mouth. Uh... <laughs> But, I mean, it was really bad in England. You'd have to... Well, yeah, <laughs> that'd be pretty bad to be worse. He could have, yeah. He could have just, like, sat in his bedroom all the time and it'd been better. But I guess they're sort of saying the superstitious uh, medieval types are saying, you know, it's not like it's the end of days and the whole world's coming tumbling down. Look how David I is doing in Scotland. Mm. He's doing a great job. It's just everything's mm. rubbish here. Okay. We have the Davidian Revolution. Most mm. impressively, a wealth of reforms in church and state and improved Scotland's governance, its economy and its church helps increase Scotland's standing in Europe because it's really part of that scene now. Right. 
Um, so he defied the Archbishop of York in terms of the church, which was trying to claim sovereignty over the Scottish church. Oh, yeah. And his alliance with Henry I helped to keep York out of Scotland. He founds many important monastic houses and he introduces a new parish system, which, as well as organising the church, also is a way that the royal influence can spread yeah. because the church is obviously supporting him and that's going into the localities where it's hard for the royal system to get. Clever. Um, we've got a bit of feudalism going on. We've got the enfeoffment of foreign knights. Mm. So these are effectively crown agents ruling territories for him. So they're building their castles. We've got major Scottish families introduced. The Stuarts, the Bruces, the Balliols all come to Scotland with David. Oh, right. They're, they were French? Yeah, all Anglo-Norman families originally. Huh. The Norman system, you build castles, you've got someone powerful there and they sort it out for you. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, he introduces sheriffdoms as local representatives for law and order, creates the office of justicia, mm. which again deals with the justice stuff. And the royal household has got all these great officers of the state introduced, chancellor, chamberlain, steward, constable, and much better educated clerks as well. So there's a better bureaucracy in yeah, place. to write all this down. And because of the anarchy and all the territory that he gains, he acquires mints from England. Not imperials, but places to make coins. Oh, right. So it's the first time that Scotland has its own coinage. No. And because of the stability in Scotland versus the chaos in England, in England we've got all sorts of earls and nobles doing their own coins. Yeah. Quality is going down the drain. But in Scotland, we've only just developed it, it's all universal. It's all um, centralised. It's just secure under David. And the quality is actually better than the English coin. So what were they using before? English coins? Uh, well, English coins are just uh, bartering goods, really. Wow. Whereas now we've got Scotland's first trading boroughs established. He founds about 12 to 16 places, including Berwick, Perth and Aberdeen. And they've got a monetised economy established. God, that's so much later than I thought. Quite a lot of good things there. Yeah. The criticisms of him were that he was seen as a bit of a Norman cuckoo that destroys Celtic Scotland. So, you know, we've got feudalism, obviously, all these foreign knights coming in, all these norm Anglo-Norman practices. Yeah, but it wasn't working, was it? I mean, you've got to, you've got to get with the times. You've got to move on. Yeah, you can't still be... Well, I don't know what they were doing, really. But it's like <laughs> giving me a, a goose for... for I don't know, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> Something <laughs> that isn't a roast dinner. <laughs> anything else. Or an egg. A stone. Do they lay eggs? They I mean, do, obviously they lay eggs, but you eat but, the eggs. Yeah, interestingly, they only lay around Easter time. Ah. So I'm starting to put my little eyes out there for some geese eggs <laughs> some at this geese time of the year. Wandering around. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I think it's pretty good, pretty really. Pretty good. And yet, James the Fourth is the one that came out top in subjectivity with 19 out of 20. Wow. Again, the best for a Scottish Rexactor monarch. Yeah. Unlike his father, he regularly traverses the country, um, so he's seen by the public, um, but also he's helping to ensure that uh, justice is being done, mm. attending things in person. He reorganises civic courts, and an Education Act of 1496 made uh, compulsory for landowners to send their sons to school. Mm. So they'd be conversant in the law, and consequently the judges that then come through will actually know what oh, they're talking right. about. Okay, Yeah, it's not just... Uh, he makes regular pilgrimages on foot. Yeah, showing his piety, and he got a blessed sword and hat from the Pope. Pretty good. So it's good with the church, but also it's quite fun, because basically he just takes all of his friends on tour for the <laughs> pilgrimage. They've got lots of entertainment with them, and he visits his various mistresses along the way. Wicked. Lads on tour. 
Scotland is at peace at this time. The nobles are really well united. They're all behind James. He adopts the thistle as the heraldic emblem. Oh, wow, Rex fact. And really, this is the most stable that Scotland's been since Alexander III in 1286. It's a bit of a golden age again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he spends lavishly on the Great Hall at Stirling and other castles. Um, so got lots of lovely architecture coming along. Mm. Um, other rulers in Europe at this time are starting to withdraw into their private chambers, but James is all about chivalry and the medieval romance. So he's still got the great catching up, feasting, and all this sort of stuff. They've only just put in money, so <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it's a fun court. It's actually yeah. it's all open. It's kind of what you expect to see from kinging. Yeah, in yeah, many yeah. Ways. It's the yeah, image. Um, it's a golden age of Scots poetry. Oh, brilliant. We had the Macars, Henryson, Dunbar and Douglas, but this is where we got those court satires as well with the first recorded F and C words in the English language. No. And they were the 16th century rap battles. Oh, yes. Slagging yes. each other off. Fantastic. Fantastic. So even the poetry's fun. Oh, oh, yeah, I suppose it was. Uh, in 1507, he approved the installation of Scotland's first printing press. He also established the first university medical faculty at Aberdeen and gave a royal uh, charter to the incorporation of surgeons and barbers. Was he he the guy that practised dentistry in his spare time? And he is interested in his science. Dentistry is his hobby. He used to pay people to let him practise on them. He's also apparently the first recorded whiskey drinker in history because he gets uh, a a distillery going. He is the most Scottish king. If you were to just brainstorm Scotland, all things Scottish. Thistle. Yeah. Whiskey drinking, uh, speaking Gaelic, or at least you know, bit of an accent. Bit of an accent. <laughs> that's that's they'd be right in the top five. <laughs> he's a Renaissance prince. He's intelligent. He's charismatic. He's charming. The nobles like him. There are no rebellions or unrest. The people like him. He's famed apparently for just going around talking to ordinary people. Yeah. Last uh, Scottish king to speak Gaelic as well. So even the Highlanders are quite impressed. In terms of the period that we're covering, if there was one reign that you could go to where everything's steady and stable, but also quite advanced and yeah, nice place, this is perhaps the best yeah. reign to be in. As for against James, he is a bit arbitrary in his rule. He does abuse church appointments for his own ends, as we said, appointing yeah. illegitimate children <laughs> so he can take the money. Um, unprecedented acts of revocation where he basically just writes himself a blank check <laughs> to take the people. He is. Are you sure <laughs> this isn't uh, Charles II in disguise? Because they did love a disguise. Well, I mean, he is a direct descendant. But of- well, Charles is directly descended from yeah. this chat. Yeah. That's why he's if he, yeah, he's scoring better for me now. He does ultimately get a run up a seven thousand pound annual deficit. So perhaps if he hadn't died at Flodden, he might have started running into a bit of money trouble. And perhaps the biggie really is Flodden, mm. because you know we always say that we can't blame the monarch for what happens in the next reign and their son and whatnot. But mm. by going down at Flodden, it's an abrupt and unnecessary end to this golden age. His popularity means that we see an unprecedented number of casualties from the nobles, but also further down as well. It's almost a sort of World War One scenario where you just get this generation wiped out. Yeah, Everybody yeah. in Scotland really is either old or young because all the leaders have died. Yeah. Shows that he's popular, people like him, that's a good thing, but... Mm. It's quite a big loss. Scotland doesn't quite recover from it for a long time. It's terrible. Yes. How are they lining up? Presumably Again, Malcolm II, not a big contender in this category. <laughs> no, I've got one word written here. Rubbish. <laughs> uh, I think, again, it's a, a clear division down the centre with uh, two top dogs, and I can't split the top dog. I mean, he's, in a way, it's similar to David... James and Kenneth II, they both achieve a lot of stability, but 
Mm. Arguably, it doesn't survive them. Mm. So you've got a question mark over whether there's a lot of lasting legacy in terms of that piece. I mean, and the, I think the but thing... they all have visions of the future. Kenneth yeah. has got the idea of the succession. David has all of those big reforms. Mm. James has got all of his dentistry and stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> I think Kenneth's uh, score clearly isn't as good to me uh, as as good to me as uh, David and James's. But the that um, stability in the trying to instigate mm. primogeniture uh, is really important. Mm. Arguably more important than some of the smaller things that James does, but there's so many of them. Yeah. Um, and obviously James IV is the most recent one in the period mm. in which we've got a lot more evidence. You know, there might be that Kenneth II and David I were... Yeah. doing lots of fun things at court, but we don't have that recorded because mm. they could only really record the big things that yeah. happened. Yeah, didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the problem for Kenneth is that he's got this great vision of the succession, but he isn't actually able to make it happen. Yeah. So, you know, if Malcolm II had succeeded him, his son had succeeded, that would be a massive tick for Kenneth. Instead, it's a, well... Yeah, he had no Credit idea. for the idea, but you didn't yeah. actually see it through. But you have to be so much better in those early days mm. to have any type of success yeah that when that does happen it it should count for more than someone like james coming along and being able to i don't know have have his glastonbury tour yeah because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just so much easier for him whereas perhaps david is the one that is actually putting in the massive reforms that really changes yeah scotland mm. in the big way but the question of subjectivity mm. Who would you want to be a subject of? It does sound more fun than James IV. Longevity. So, fact-based here. Kenneth II uh, had the shortest reign, 971 to 995, 24 years, mm-hmm. which is a score of 13 out of 20. 15th best overall, 10th for X Factor winners. Mm-hmm. Then it's James IV, 1488 to 1513, 25.25 years, mm-hmm. 13 and a half out of 20. 13th best overall, 8th of the winners. Mm. Then it's David the First, 1124 to 53, 29.08 years, 15 out of 20. Mm-hmm. And the best for longevity was the serial killer, Malcolm II, 1005 to 34, 29.67 years, a score again of 15 out of 20, but because it was a bit longer than David. Yeah. Rank him higher. Exactly. Uh, it's to be expected with Malcolm, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's impressive that Malcolm II has the longest reign, but. Um, He's the th- apart from his father, he's the earliest one. So he's yeah. in the period that you'd expect them to have shorter reigns because it's so violent and everybody dies because it's. But he's the one bringing the violence. I mean, no one else can. <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, but he was quite apparently he was like fit. We said he's about eighty when he died. Yeah. So that is impressive longevity from from the serial killer. <laughs> James the Fourth perhaps the least impressive. Say th- third of four, of course, but also he's the one in the later period. He's the one that could have gone on for a lot longer. Yeah, definitely thought that. That should have been top. Mm. And he's doing all his medicine. Exactly. Dynasty, not the program. Well, poor old David I, because his uh, eldest son died just a year before him, didn't have any surviving oh, children. Poor chap. He did do well to get his grandson in place, but ultimately mm. it's a zero. Yeah, bad news. James IV, of course, lots of illegitimate children, mm. only two surviving legitimate kids. That's funny, isn't it? It's like, again, like uh, Charles. Mm. Loads of activity, but... Four out of 20 is his score. Malcolm II, though he doesn't have any sons, he did have daughters. 
It's a bit debatable exactly how many, but probably three, right. we reckon, which is a score of six out of 20. And likewise, Kenneth II also apparently had three surviving children. So also six out of 20. Are we going to give Ken more points because he had boys? Because it's going to be more <laughs> secure. I mean, Yeah, I mean, he was the one, I suppose, that produced the uh, claimants to yeah. the throne. But then again, maybe Malcolm was more impressive in his dynasty and the fact that he was able to be presented with a scenario where he'd got to have a son to succeed him and he had daughters. Yeah. And he thought, well, I'm going to find a way. Yeah, I'll make this work. <laughs> and he did make mm. it work. Likewise, David doesn't have any children, but actually he does have to work again to get his young grandchildren mm. acknowledged. Yeah. So, obviously they all have that certain something. Of course they do. But who will be going through to the final? Who has really got the... Rex Factor! In terms of scores, yep. Malcolm II was bottom with 51. Really? Then it was Kenneth II with 55. David I, I discovered, also had 55. So technically, um, they should have actually been of equal rank, yeah. David and Kenneth. But I think I just did it on... Uh, I don't know how I did it, why I put David ahead of him. But it worked out because they ended up in the same group, so it wouldn't Thank have made goodness. any difference anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the top scorer, by quite a long way, was 66, was James IV. Wow. Now, I think the interesting thing, mm. with your um, stats page on the... Yeah, I'm trying to work out how James IV would have come out on top, apart from his scandal and subjectivity, but... Well, he did, and he was all right for battliness with his navy and his heroic uh, death. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, Malcolm actually scores really highly across the board, and I think it's the subject... Consistency. It's the subjectivity that brought him down. Oh. Malcolm II. Oh, So he I ends see. up as the lowest scoring monarch of this group, but actually he was, in terms of his position in the group, for most of the factors, he was kind of near the top. Yeah, he's got a 13, a 12, a 15, and then a 5. Wow. But so, when, you're, when you're punching at this division, yeah. you need to be consistent across them all. So that's what brought him down. The fact that he just went around killing everybody meant that he didn't get a good subjectivity score. Mm. But it worked for battles, it worked for scandal, it worked for everything else. But mm. just not that one mm. thing. You've got to think about this if you're going for the Rex Factor. But do you have to be an all-rounder, or actually could you say, well, you know what, he was pretty good at the stuff he was doing. Didn't need to worry about subjectivity. He'd got other things to do. If you want a high score, mm. you can do it that way. You can go absolutely crazy with your <laughs> knife and have awful lot of sex with nuns and kill lots of people. But if you want to, you know, if you want to have that certain something when you're against other people who already have that certain something mm. it's tricky it's a difficult one to decide isn't it we've got some uh, got some big names in there in a way perhaps it's unfortunate for Kenneth II and Malcolm II father and son mm. it's almost what you sometimes when you have immediate follow-ons you get a sense of well if we could kind of combine this yeah. in a way maybe it's more impressive whereas David I is kind of in his own thing James IV very much part of a different world yeah they're sort of, they're, as you say, that well, the fact that they're father and son, sort of, it, it links them together. They're of the same age. So mm. in some ways, maybe it's quite easy to compare them. You certainly compare them against each other. Yeah. But maybe they get lost a bit when... When you then compare them against these two, who mm. are all about their sort of their renaissance, big R, small mm. R. Um, oh. There's only one thing for it. I'm going to have to add up my little system. Indeed, and then we'll have to vote. So, as with uh, Group A and forthcoming in Group C, Ali and Thank I you. will rank the monarchs in the order that we think uh, they should be in, and that will be combined with uh, your vote. So go on to our websites, Facebook and on Twitter, to get the links to the survey. You vote for who you think should win Group B 
and go through to the grand final. <laughs> okay, okay. Just need to do some rudimentary maths. Oh, and I've got a draw. Oh, oh no. So now I just have to make a straight choice. Oh, it's actually quite an easy choice. <laughs> it's actually quite neat. Honestly, when you when you open this, I almost want to tell you now, but I can't. But ah, <laughs> oh. all right, done, done. That's great. That's great. Doing that system, like scoring them again as we're going through for me, mm. helps me sort of find out where my thinking is overall. And actually, when there's a draw. You do have to decide, of these people that already have that certain something, yeah. which has that little bit more. And I'm happy. So, Ali and I have voted for uh, who we think should win Group B, but now it's over to you. Go mm. to rexfactor.wordpress.com, rexfactor.podby.com, look out for the links on Facebook and on Twitter, and you will vote for who you want to go through to Group B. And we don't know how Ali and I have... Well, I know how I voted, and Ali probably knows how he's voted, but... We don't know. Probably. <laughs> That's a good, good caveat. We don't know if we voted the same way. Your vote could very well be decisive. Yeah, it certainly will. I mean, it's a third, third of the scores come from you guys. Exactly. Now, the, uh, the deadline for voting will be, for all of the groups, the 30th of April. So you've got until 30th of April 2018, in case you're listening to this a few years later, <laughs> to decide who you think should win Group B. Brilliant. But you can also always get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about this episode or anything else uh, in the series. Um, message us on Twitter at RexFactorPod. Like us and join in the discussions on our Facebook page. Uh, or you can email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And I also realise I should have been writing this on my notes to say every time. We are also on Instagram at RexFactorPod. Oh, yeah. So you can follow our little photos of our hmm. various recording studios that we now have <laughs> in the shed today. If you'd like to support the podcast, you could leave a review on iTunes. Very helpful. And subscribe, or indeed whatever other podcast provider you use. Mm. Um, if you'd like to donate to us financially, you could do a one-off donation via PayPal, or you can pay monthly and join the Rex Factor Privy Council. <whistles> Everybody that signs up to that will have free access to our Privy Chamber bonus podcast, which nice. we record after each of our main episodes. And mm. Five dollars a month or more, you get access to all of our special episodes. Yep. Ten dollars a month or more, you get a mug, and fifteen dollars a month, you get to commission a blog on the subject of your choice. Very nice. And we've got some new privy councillors to welcome today. Hey, great! Nat Noel, Colin Schnackenberg, Lucy Welton, Matthew Hughes, and Lauren Lewis. Hello, welcome to the Privy Council. Thank you all very, very yeah, much. Yeah, thank you very, very much. So that is it for Group B. Make sure that you vote for your favourite by the 30th of April. Next time it will be the last of the first round groups, Group C. Cheerio! <laughs> for posterity, I wave to Ali. <laughs>